Welcome to another edition Litigation Psychology Podcast, brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. I am Dr. Bill Kanaski. I have to tell you, first announcement, it's very nice to be doing a podcast that's not at 4 a.m. in the morning. I, I appreciate that. I actually have a day off here to, to enjoy myself, uh, hit the gym. I have to start with my rant today, and my target is Southwest Airlines. And we have a very special guest. He's actually part of this story because I was working with him um, a couple of weeks ago and just trying to get home, just trying to get home to the, the part three of the Duke Carolina finale, which we'll talk about in a second. And I get to love field. In fact, my guest and I right, right out in front of the building and he went to DFW. I went to love and I get to the airport and Southwest cancels my flight and puts me on a 6 a.m. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, I'm business select. I'm A1. What the hell is going on? Oh, it's, it's weather in Orlando. You can't. I go, well, can you put me on a different airline? Like, I got to get back because this big game's tomorrow. Weather in Orlando. It's terrible. You, you're not going to be able to fly to Orlando. <clears throat> well, I go back to my hotel. I'm, I'm just irate, pissed. And I call home. And I'm like, hey, hey, honey, you know, my, can't, my, my flight got canceled. You know, the weather must be bad there. She's like, oh, it's, it's bright and sunny. It's bright and what do you mean it's bright and sunny i just got told it with and then of course overnight into the next day all over the national news southwest their computer systems nationally went down okay and they canceled a bunch of flights everything came to a standstill they just lied to my face i didn't even get a drink coupon out of this luckily i was able to get home on the but that was a 4 a.m wake up again to get to a 6 a.m flight luckily i was able to take a nap before the huge Duke Carolina finale and the Carolina Tar Heels prevail and send Coach K packing forever. Every Duke fan can suck on it. Very special uh, guest today from the law firm of Bovis, uh, Bovis Kyle in Atlanta, Georgia, Billy Davis. Billy, how are you? I'm great, Bill. Good to see you. Hey, I read, I read your bio and I got to tell you, you have an interesting background. So you were I've got to hear the backstory on that. You were a financial advisor, right? Like one of the least stressful jobs from what I hear, really cushy, right? Right. You're taking people out to dinner and you're just spending their money. This is fantastic. You're investing their money. And then you decide to go into law. That's right. Have you, have you seen a doc? Have you seen a doctor, maybe a psychologist over this decision? <laughs> what, what, what's the, what's <laughs> yeah, there wasn't enough stress in the uh, financial services sector, especially when I was doing that. Uh, this is years ago now, but if you remember the dot-com bubble person, yeah. uh, that, back then we used to talk about the, the high on the uh, NASDAQ. I think it was, it was like January 15th. I used to have the date memorized, but that was exactly the date that I got licensed to sell securities. Uh, oh, so, my. Yeah. So it was, it was a tough, tough gig. Yeah. <laughs> uh, timing, timing, is, timing is everything, right? Well, yeah, you made it into that. Now, you're a graduate of Auburn University, correct? That's right. And LSU for law school. And LSU for law school. Um, I have no problems with Auburn. I kind of like Auburn. Now, you, you stole arguably one of our best players named uh, uh, Kessler uh, Walker from North Carolina, who uh, was, I think, all uh, SEC defense this year in basketball. But I, I think Auburn had a, had, a, had a pretty good run, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I you know, I think they're not the team they, they were a few years ago, but uh, you know, we're excited about what's to come. So you you live in Atlanta. So being an Auburn grad, do like people egg your house? Do they do they like toilet <laughs> no, paper no. your? What do they do? 
You know, so actually, I mean, outside of, of cities in the state of Alabama, um, Atlanta is the biggest destination for Auburn grads. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really generally in good company here. Uh, there's, uh, of course, Atlanta's huge, but it's yes. a great place to be if you went to an SEC school. And, uh, and there's really no shortage of Auburn fans here. Oh, well, that's well, there you go. A little melting pot of uh, the Southeastern uh, Conference. So um, your practice looks pretty diverse, Billy. Tell us about the types of cases um, that, that, that you tend to work on. Sure. Yeah. So uh, probably the biggest percentage of them tend to be, well, first of all, it's all defense work. Um, and then the largest percentage will involve catastrophic injuries. So uh, transportation litigation, those would be, you know, tractor trailer crashes, things blowing up at refineries, um, yeah. you know, general mayhem, things of that nature, but, but where you're going to have people who are either killed or seriously injured, or perhaps groups of people who are hurt. Uh, and then I do some uh, legal and, and medical malpractice work, uh, defending doctors, lawyers, um, uh, nurses, you know, folks in the medical profession. Uh, and then the rest of it is just sort of, uh, you know, generic, uh, we would call general liability work. And so that's, uh, you know, there are businesses out there, they have insurance policies for various things. And, and you know, lo and behold, they get sued for one reason or another. Uh, and, and so I and, and several people in my firm handle that kind of work. We, we defend businesses and their employees when they get sued in the ordinary course of business. Excellent. Now, yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, defense attorneys out there that really pick one of those areas and they become a specialist. You're more diverse. How does that diversity help you as an attorney working on several different types of cases versus, say, just products or just transportation? I think it, it helps keep me sharp. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think the skill set really, and I've said this for years, is, is litigation. Um, you know, I mean, if uh, you got to know how to try a case. You got to know how to set a case up to go to trial. You know, we try so few of them these days. So uh, really aggressive pre-trial litigation is sort of the name of the game. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I view the actual work, though, uh, whether it be a legal malpractice case or a transportation case, sort of as an opportunity to, to cross train. I mean, there's a lot of mm -hmm. similar themes in those cases. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, you know, there's, you have to be sharp on the details of that particular business. Um, but it, it provides, a, you know, a variety of things for me to do. Um, you know, for example, the legal malpractice cases are, are perhaps the most interesting, because ideally, if you're going to defend a legal malpractice case, you want to, um, you want to be able to demonstrate that there wasn't malpractice. Um, but unfortunately, you can't always do that. And when you can't, then you focus on demonstrating that there really wasn't any damage caused by the malpractice. And so that typically means you're stepping into the shoes of whatever transaction or litigation was going on at the time of the malpractice. And then you'll, so if it was a case that was going on and they, the, the allegations that the lawyer screwed up the case, um, we end up actually retrying that, that underlying case. Um, and so and if the jury comes back with, with you know, with, with a zero, then it means there was a real, there was, there was no, no harm, no foul, essentially. So in that kind of work, you really, as a lawyer, I think are generally jumping into entirely different areas of law from one case to the next. Um, and again, at the end of the day, the skill set is litigating. So, okay. True or false. And I need brutal honesty here. Lawyers, worst witnesses, right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> they right, Really? Cause you're wired a certain way, right? I mean, that has to be it has to be tough preparing another lawyer for deposition or, or trial testimony. Is it because they can't get out of lawyer mode? It's so hard to get in the witness mode. I, I think that's it. And, and I, you know, I think Bill, even in a, the example I like to give is, you know, if, if you know a guy who's a great mechanic and then you look at his car, it's, it's typically being worked on and it's covered in primer. Um, if, if you know a guy who's an architect, 
Uh, typically they're working on something in their house and it's, it's never quite done. And so I, I, my theory is that, you know, because lawyers are engaged in the practice of lawyering all day long, they, they, uh, when it comes time to their, you know, to, to actually litigate something they did, um, it's, it's a, it's a mess. <laughs> so, yeah, that makes sense. Tell us a little bit about your law firm and kind of what, how you think, you know, w- what the firm does to distinguish itself. Cause there's a lot of law firms in Atlanta and a lot in the Southeast. Tell, tell us about, about the firm and what you think the best characteristics are. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we've got really a, a diverse uh, number of practice groups. And, and so, you know, our firm is in some ways uh, easily recognizable as a, tr- as a traditional insurance defense firm, um, you know, obviously doing the kind of work that I do, general liability insurance defense. Uh, but then we have, uh, we actually have a, a corporate law section that does a lot of transactional work. Um, they're, uh, they operate as the city attorney uh, for, for one of the large cities out, just outside of uh, Atlanta proper in the wow. metro Atlanta area. Um, and they do a lot of transactional work as well. Um, and then we've got a fairly large workers' compensation section that handles uh, workers' compensation defense. Um, we've got a few folks who handle uh, work nationally uh, and operate as outside national counsel for some larger clients uh, in, a, in a couple of different areas. Uh, and then interestingly, uh, we actually have a family law section that handles uh, high net worth divorces oh. in the metro Atlanta area. Um, so, so that's not something I think you typically find at, at uh, your regular insurance defense firm. But I love it because it really allows us to be full service because you know, our, our clients, uh, you know, occasionally need, need divorce and family law services, and we can do it all in, in one, one shot. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So uh, we recently worked together and we had never worked together before. And we have not talked before this podcast. We have not rehearsed any of this and um, you and some other attorneys uh, and, and, and your client, um, we, uh, we met in Texas and we did uh, two days of uh, corporate rep uh, witness training uh, prior to deposition. And you've been through witness prep sessions before, uh, obviously, but probably not with somebody like me. Share with our audience, um, because I think this is important, because I think that those sessions went really well and we learned a lot. Um, Things that maybe surprised you about the that about the approach I take and, and and maybe some of the things that were even shocking to you relative to say a standard witness prep just with attorney and client sure you know I, I think um, the, the number one surprise really was um, you know we we really brought um, several different folks from the company um, with an eye with an eye toward you know, knowing that everybody who works at a company, when, when they get hired, they get hired for their particular skill set. They're good managers or they're good truck drivers or, or whatever the case may be. Um, they're never hired because they're a good witness. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, so knowing that, that, you know, after doing this for years, you know, some people just have that sort of, you know, je ne sais quoi, and they're, they're just a good witness for whatever reason. Uh, so we had several folks there. And, and what was the biggest surprise was to find out that, that our ultimate selection of the person we felt was was probably in the best position to testify was not, uh, I think, who everybody would have assumed it would have been at the outset of it. Um, which and so it was a it was a very pleasant surprise though because uh, we at, by the end of the two days I think everyone in the room felt very comfortable with that decision, um, and and really as the lawyer involved, uh, I was particularly pleasantly surprised by that because it, it uh, you know, it made me realize if we had just gone off of, uh, off of our gut instinct, um, we, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have bet on the right horse, I don't think. So, yeah. um, 
yeah, that was that was a great revelation. Yeah, and we do that a lot because there's a lot of like you. It's if you if you rely on a gut feeling, um, that can lead to to, to trouble, <laughs> right? And so it's a good way to make sure you have the the right person in the chair is by putting them through the training, uh, making them uh, perform. There are a couple of different parts of the train that I want you to comment on. There's particularly two parts that this witness struggled with. Um, number one, the speed of the interaction. This witness was answering questions and the attorney, the, our other attorney couldn't get in the objections. Um, can you tell us about your experience with the training, how a slow witness is a, is a much better and safer witness versus a witness that responds more spontaneously? Sure, sure. I think, you know, I think, I think everyone who, who litigates, every lawyer who litigates uh, always wishes their, their witness would answer questions more slowly. But I, I frankly think a lot of us just give up on that. I mean, it's, it's yeah. I think, part of standard deposition training. Uh, but it's very difficult to find someone who, who will do it um, and who can maintain it consistently. And so I was, I was really pleased. I, I think, um, so, you know, of course, our training for the two days together was, was split up. You know, first day was mostly theory. Yeah. Um, which I thought was very important because I think the witness is understanding the why behind what we do and also having had an opportunity to, to, to see some actual clips of depositions to understand how it goes wrong and what it looks like when it goes wrong. Um, I think that left them really well prepared for the second day, which was all practical. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and, and I think, you know, I think the first day training and I've, I've spoken with the, you know, with the witness uh, that, that we selected as a result of that process. And, and, you know, he's told me it, it really did shine a light on some things for him that, that, you know, he kind of keeps in the back of his mind now as he's testifying. Um, and he, and he did a fantastic job. And I, I know he's going to do a fantastic job when he testifies at slowing down, and listening to those questions, because um, because as you taught us, Bill, you know you you cannot uh, uh, listen and formulate an answer at the same time. Can't do it. It, it, it needs to be a, a multi-step process. You need to listen and then think, and then uh, and then give your answer. And and of course, there's so many other practical reasons why that's a good idea. It gives the lawyer time to object. Yeah. Uh, it's, it it and it and as you also taught us, it gives the witness control over over the deposition. Mm -hmm. That's probably the only thing the witness has control over is the speed and pacing. Uh, and we've all seen it go bad. I mean, shoot, even on, on television, it's, it's, it's one of the things, it's dramatic, right? It's one of the things they play out in a courtroom or a lawyer scene. The lawyer is on a tear asking questions one right after the other. And, and it's, uh, it's exciting to watch on a television show. It's <laughs> horrifying to watch if you're, if you're defending that witness. <laughs> yeah. So. No, no, absolutely. You know, our, what we try and want to do is, you know, maximize cognition to get the most effective answer. You know, the problem is in society and particularly these people and, and their roles at work, you know, time is money, speed and efficiency are an important part of communication at work. And then you do that in the depth and the, the, the skills that make you great at work, make you a terrible, uh, a terrible witness. So that's why that, that speed's so important, but it's a, it's a learned skill. It's a learned, it's a, it's really, really a learned skill that re, you know, that requires practice and, and feedback. Now, the other thing that happened now, now this particular witness wasn't a big talker, wasn't given long wordy answers, which is a problem we see with a lot of witnesses. He didn't have that problem. He was actually good at keeping it tight. But um, do you recall the level of emotion and how that emotion came out and his, his, his body language and, and how, how, how quickly he kind of took the emotional bait from an aggressive questioner? 
Sure, sure. And, you know, I think, um, I think, the, I think the toughest thing, I mean, if I have to put myself into a, a potential witness's shoes, especially if they're going to provide corporate testimony. Um, I mean, so, so they're already walking into the room for prep under pressure because they understand yeah. they've been asked by upper management to do this. And so there's a real feeling all eyes are on me. Um, and then obviously from their perspective, especially if they've never, never done this before, you know, they believe that they're there to be the company's spoke spokesperson um, mm -hmm. in, in the, in the way that they've come to understand what the company's messages. Um, and so, you know, what the message is on the website, what the message is internally uh, about a lot of, a lot of policies and procedures. And, and of course, in this particular case, um, you know, we were dealing with with a, a, a transportation issue, and so that's going to involve, you know, internal rules and regulations regarding safety. Um, and and of course, anybody who's in this business and handles a, a, a transportation work and, and especially work where safety rules are at issue, you know, it's 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 just become a, a real quagmire, a real tough uh, deal for witnesses. And so, so I think uh, I think you know this poor witness, and and again, he's he's a he, he's a great employee. Yep. He, is, he does his job extremely well, yep. um, but but you know we're asking him to come in as a witness and tone down <laughs> a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the corporate corporate speak that that he would normally get yeah. fired at and say <laughs> and so yeah. so you know so I think all that all that pressure it, it it certainly was not his fault that he got emotionally activated because he's he's a he's a company cheerleader in any other context that's the guy you want speaking on behalf of the company but. But this is litigation. This is a this is a deposition. Um, it's a whole different ball of wax. And so, um, so I, I, you know, again, I thought that was particularly helpful to see. To, I'm glad we had that reaction in a test setting, exactly, uh, rather, rather than when it was live. It's a, it's a lot cheaper in the test setting than it is in the in the real. And as you know, you know, the, you know, you have those emotional reactions, but we would call that uh, amygdala hijack, uh, hippocampal circuit reacting. Yeah, that's a neurochemical response that lasts three to five hours. It's really hard to get it back together once you've become emotional. So it's a that's a, that's a that's a really tricky topic. Then the the other thing that came up, which does come up at times, not a lot, but I found it to be interesting, and I want your thoughts on this and see how often you see this. Is um, and I think we found this on day one actually was this your role as the witness, particularly as the corporate rep, there was some very unexpected fear that if I'm not perfect in this step, I'm losing my job, I'm getting demoted. Do you see that a lot? I, I see it sometimes, but it, it, let's put it this way. It was the type of fear that we literally had to take a couple of timeouts and people needed to go for walks and talk because that's, that's how troubling it was. I'm glad we found that because if that would have popped up in the middle of deposition, I mean, we would have been screwed. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, uh, again, and so glad that we went through the process, as you just said, in order to, in order to, you know, uncover that. Um, and, you know, and I don't, I don't think it's the witness's fault at no. all. Um, you know, this is, um, you know, as you know, Bill, I think sometimes, Something I tell my clients all the time is that it's a little bit like going through the looking glass um, when, when you step out of whatever you were doing normally and all of a sudden you're in litigation mm -hmm. land, um, uh, you know, and, and I try and remain pretty sensitive to that as a practitioner uh, because because most folks, uh, you know, are, are not professional witnesses. So they're, they're yeah. giving a deposition for the first time or or only for the second time. Um, 
And, and so I, I, you know, I try and keep in mind the pressure on them and, and, and what's going on. But I think, you know, I think in this case, um, I, you know, I, I, I've seen that happen before, actually. Um, and I think it's just where you, you have a real strong corporate culture around a particular mm-hmm. issue. And it just so happens that that particular issue is also going to be problematic in the litigation. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, you're, you're, you're having someone who's used to cheerleading that issue. Um, and then now, now we're asking them to take a little bit of a step back from it and maybe, maybe, you know, just, just deliver it that issue in a more neutral fashion, um, which is the smart thing to do in litigation. Um, but, but it, it runs very contrary to their, their programming, I think, in their brain. And I think, I, I think certainly there's a lot of fear of, well, if my boss reads this transcript and I'm not cheerleading the typical yeah. company line, I, I'm going to lose my job. What, what you guys are asking me to do is going to get me into trouble. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting and well understood reaction. You know? Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Can you comment on the importance? Because one thing that I see the defense bar persistently getting burned on, and I'm not saying it's the attorney's fault, oftentimes it's the client's fault or the insurance company's fault for not approving various things. Um, the the benefits of doing things of being proactive and doing things like this early in the process. Cause can you imagine we did that on a Thursday and Friday, if that depths on Monday, we're, we're big trouble. Whereas right. if you have time and you find a problem, you can actually do something about it. Uh, what's been your experience as far as how, how you handle litigation timelines and I'm assuming, because I, I feel very strongly about this, uh, earlier the better, right? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, any, any lawyer who's been litigating for any amount of time <clears throat> has unfortunately had, had the experience at least once, but probably several times, where a witness just goes completely off the reservation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, you know, the, the worst, uh, and I won't go into details because I, I hate war stories, but I, I actually had that happen to me once at trial. Oh, um, that's my, the worst. my client was called on cross as the first witness in the trial yep. and, uh, and, 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 and testified so poorly that, uh, <laughs> that the judge actually called for a break 20 minutes into the questioning, uh, which Ouch. was astonishing. It was right at the beginning of the trial. Yeah, so, <laughs> TV timeout. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was right. It was, uh, it was uh, pretty tough to sit there and poker face it. Um, but, but, and, you know, looking back on that, I think, you know, in that case, I had recommended that we do some sort of organized witness preparation because, because from getting burned earlier in my career, you know, I think it's important to have somebody evaluate the witness psychologically yeah. um, and, and understand how he's going to respond to pressure. And, and I just, you know, I think I'm pretty darn good at taking depositions and organizing depositions and, and defending depositions, but that, that doesn't necessarily make me, you know, good at evaluating witness psych- psychologically. It's not, it's not what I do. It's, it's not my educational background. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, if we, had, if we had done that earlier with this witness, if we would have known, you know, w- once the pressure gets to a certain level, he's just going to forget everything and, and, and just, and just start saying yes to whatever, whatever they, uh, they, they want him to say yes to. Yeah. And that's um, what happens. That's exactly right. what happens. So early intervention, and, early interventions is better intervention. Sure. Sure. Well, in that case, I can tell you there was an offer on the table, you know, so settlement was still being discussed, even though trial had begun. And after that testimony, the, 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 uh, you know, when we took a break, the lawyers told me deals off the table. And now it's, you know, yeah. And why would you, why would you take the money after that testimony? You just doubled or tripled your money. I mean, wow, that's, that's amazing. What have you, um, 
And by the way, you, you, I mean, you are in the birthplace of the plaintiff reptile theory right there in Atlanta. Right. What, um, what, what types of changes have you seen from the plaintiff's bar kind of since things have been picking up lately over here in the last year? I, some of the things, I mean, I have seen, um, which kind of it started before, but now it's, you know, they all talk to each other and they all share information. Um, I've seen a, a lot of aggression by the plaintiff's bar. I've seen a lot of ridiculous demands, like, and just really not really trying to resolve the case, but just to try to cause a lot of conflict on the defense side. What, what have you been seeing from the, from the plaintiff's bar? Well, certainly a lot of aggression. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, the way I refer to it is I, I think, and it depends on, depends on the kind of case you're talking about, because, you know, it's yeah. funny, there's, there's some areas of law where the practitioners are all very professional and they're a pleasure to deal with, but then there's other areas like transportation, where I would say it's very much like a contact sport. Oh yeah, uh, it is. It is. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm fortunate. I actually cut my teeth as a litigator doing Jones Act litigation in New Orleans. Um, and, and I had worked in the oil field as a, as a rough man. So I put myself through college. So I, oh, wow. I got involved with that kind of early on the defense side. And, the, you know, that litigation, I, I'm sure you've seen, uh, you know, oil field litigation is its own thing. Yeah, uh, I've, and, I've, I've been, do, I've, I've done several uh, cases down in uh, Louisiana for uh, BP Chevron. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, and everybody I think has seen that, you know, the famous Joe Jamail deposition on YouTube and so, yep. you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and so, so it, you know, I was glad that I had that experience um, because I, you know, it does teach you how to handle aggression. And, and, you know, I was reminded of it uh, when, when we did the preparation with you, Bill, because everything you talked about in terms of the witness not getting activated and controlling their emotions, I think applies equally to the lawyer as well, because yeah. uh, because when things get aggressive and 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 other lawyers start making it personal, getting in your face, you know, doing things you really think are unprofessional to your witness and not making you happy, you have to keep calm um, yeah. because you know you need to be objective and make the right right decisions. Um, so so aggression is a big thing. Um, you know we've seen we've seen. Uh, I, you know, I've seen this happen a couple of times now, which I thought was interesting, but asking, you know, sort of creating exhibits in the middle of a deposition, uh, you yeah. know, actually asking a witness to sign things in, in depositions. Crazy. Just, yeah. And then, you know, there's, there's really not a lot of developed law on that. And, and so yeah. I think there's a lot of fighting going on about, about how it's all going to shake out. But, it, but it, it can be really, if you're not ready for that, uh, it can catch you off guard for sure. Um, um, yeah. So that's, that's mostly what I see. And then you asked me about demands. I mean, that's... Yeah. You know, Bill. I mean, it, it it's it's troublesome. I think these days to give a fair evaluation of a case, you know, a serious injury case, particularly if it's in a hotbed area of litigation like yeah. premises liability, you know, negligent security or transportation, um, because there's you know there's the conventional way that we used to evaluate those. It was sort of a damages driven analysis. You know, what are, what are, what are the medical specials, and yeah. and we take a look at the jurisdiction. We come up with a number, and I think. You know, I think, you know, I think five, 10 years ago, if you surveyed 10 lawyers, you, you'd probably come up with an agreeable range across all 10 lawyers, you know. Um, but now, uh, it, I think it largely depends on who has the case, you know, how, how good is, uh, is the other lawyer? What is their track yeah. record? Um, and but but the, I don't think you can evaluate it the, in the conventional damages driven analysis anymore. I think you really need to, to look more closely on what, what, what are the verdicts, you know, I mean, yeah. regardless of what the injury was, um, yeah. uh, uh, because juries are just, I mean, they're, you know, they're really letting it rip. And, and I, yes, they are. I'm, I'm concerned it's going to be worse now as we come back from COVID. I mean, there's just not enough data post COVID on, on what juries are doing. Yeah. 
So no, we're we're trying we're trying to keep our fingers on the pulse on that one. Um, Billy, have you had the experience of when you're working up a case against, let's just say, a, a, a reasonable plaintiff attorney, and then one of these aggressive big shots comes into the case late? How do you? How do you deal with that? Because I, I, I've, I've seen this a lot. This is another thing I've seen where, you know, some somebody's got the case for three years and then Don Keenan shows up or Lloyd Bell and you're going, holy shit. Right. Um, how how do you adjust to that? Because obviously once they come in, they start handling things really, really different. And usually I've seen this become very unreasonable and threatening. Sure. And, and it, well, and look, they are unreasonable. They are threatening. And they're also outstanding lawyers mm -hmm. right, who, who do great, right. great work. I, so, I, I do not disagree. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, my advice and, and look, I've been burned on that issue before. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had a case that was a, everybody, we were workshopping it routinely and, and we really kind of thought, you know, this, this lawyer just isn't working it up. Um, you know, we're running across some deadlines here, uh, maybe we're going to sort of sneak out the back door on this one. And, mm -hmm. and lo and behold, uh, right there at the tail end, you know, they, <laughs> they brought a real mighty lawyer in and look, yep. I, I got to give it to him. He did a fantastic job in, in a short period of time. I, I, he must not have slept for a few yeah. nights in order to get that, that up to speed that quickly. Wow. Um, but, but, but you're right. I think it's a, that's an issue that's happening more and more. And so I, I think that, that, that really means we need to be a lot more proactive about getting cases settled and not letting them sit on the books. I, Totally agree. All right, last question. Then we're going to wrap it up here. And Billy, this is this has been a, a great conversation. I think this is a really important question because it scares the hell out of me, based on what I've seen, particularly over I'd say the last six or seven years. Um, defense firms, uh, and I've heard this from a million people, guys like you, um, have told me. I can't keep my good associates. These folks are bouncing around from law firm to law firm. They're millennials. They don't want to work past five o'clock. Um, and I've seen a lot of um, um, uh, disconnect and the inability to take that associate to the senior, to, to get them up, because you need help. You need these folks to, you know, from a career development uh, you know, standpoint, I think that's really important. I've seen a lot of impatience, I think, from the younger uh, attorneys. What, what advice would you give that attorney that's maybe in like years three to five, as far as career development, what, what they need to do uh, to get to that next level and, and be successful like you? Well, I, I think, first of all, they're in a great position because they can pretty much go anywhere they want. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so I mean, so that's good because I think I, my advice would be to take a look around and if, and if you're not if you're not being given the opportunities that you want, yeah. um, then then you need to go put yourself in a position where you're going to work for somebody who's yep. going to give you opportunity. Go find a busy lawyer yeah. who's, got, who's got too much to do. Um, I, because I think the story of most most lawyers' careers are, you know, they they were given a little bit of work to do, and then they just started doing a lot more, uh, you know, and and uh, and they just kind of took it on their own shoulders, and and yeah. before they knew it, their phone rings and they've got a brand new client, you know, so. Um, I, I, that's what I would advise. And I'd also say you got to find somebody who's willing to teach you their business and, and bring you along. If, 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 you know, we all get old and then we complain about what the kids are doing. Uh, and, and <laughs> I'm right, already and, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I don't really buy it. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, every generation is different. Every generation has a different focus of what they care about, but, but I, I refuse to believe that, that, you know, the millennials or Gen Z 
don't have long-term plans for their lives. I mean, I, I still think they want to have a pretty house and a family and, and you know, and a life. Um, and, and they obviously need a career in order to make that happen. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I, I think if I were advising a young lawyer, find somebody who'd take an interest in you and teach you the business because, um, because there, there, are, there are a lot of us out there who care and, and want to develop young lawyers. That's awesome. Billy Davis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hopefully we're going to be working uh, again soon. And I would love to have you uh, uh, back, particularly if we have a uh, maybe a panel with a couple of other people that have you back on the show soon. I'd love to do it. It's good seeing you, Bill. Okay. And to our audience, thank you so much for participating in another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. This is Dr. Bill Kanaski signing out. <laughs>